Welcome to episode 241 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies for the casual spike. My name is Stanislav here in Manchester, and with me on the line, from the beautiful Chicagoland, it's actually a very special guest. Dave's not here. Shane's not here either. Instead, we have the one and only George Jabour joining us. Hey, George. Hello, I'm honored to be here, and you call me very special. I'm happy to be here on a very special podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks, mate. Yeah, so Dave and Shane had to take the week off, so I invited my internet friend to join me on today's show. And, you know, sometimes when we have a guest on, it, it's like very interview-focused, but when I went through the notes, it ended up coming out very dense, and I think this is going to be a very classic dive-down episode, even though George is here instead of anyone else. We'll try my best to fill in. Before we begin, I got to talk about one of our newest sponsors. It's Heavy Play, the card gaming accessory brand that's designed to improve your gameplay and your game day. I'm playing in a tournament this weekend. I've already packed up my Heavy Play Equip Mag deck box as well as my playmat. I'm excited to use their enhanced ergonomics, mobility, and protection to show off my sweet, sweet, mostly full art Teamer Rhinos deck at an upcoming modern RCQ. Heavy Play is coming to your LGS soon, but you can also shop online at heavyplay.com and use promo code THEDIVEDOWN2023 for 10% off your first order. Or find the link just added to thedivedown.com. We have a fancy affiliate link. You don't have to memorize any promo codes now. You can just go to thedivedown.com, scroll down to our affiliate links. We have all of our sponsors, including Heavy Play. Click on that, and Randy over at the Heavy Play team will know that we sent you. But now let's talk about this week's show. Like I said, it's a dense one. George and I are going to talk about preparing for the recently begun modern RCQ season. Specifically, we're going to try to chat about the trials and tribulations of sideboarding and sideboard guides in particular. We have some fancy new technology that's going to hopefully help us sideboard smarter, or at least our, remember our sideboard plans. Because, you know, they've been living in our head and under the stress and brutal, terrible fluorescent lighting of the LGS. Like sometimes it's hard to remember the exact ins and outs, but we're going to talk about sideboard guides as well as just like the general tips for preparing for competitive REL and RCQs in particular. And then we're also going to take a quick dive into a topic that's near and dear to both my and George's hearts, which is why playing control is so friggin' hard in magic. Does, does that sound like a fun plan to you, George? I'm really excited. I was excited when you first reached out and when you told me we were going to be talking about control specifically, I was, <laughs> I was locked in. I'm ready. I mean, I got to ask, why, what, what else would we talk about? Uh, stats, numbers, diving, the sport. I don't know. Mm, spelunking. That's, that's after hours where, where we talk about the cave diving <laughs> hobby. All right, before all that, let's housekeep really quick. We do have a new patron to join the Dive Down Nation. It's the Breakfast Enjoyer. Hello, nom nom nom. We do have a new review as well from Town Bank. Maybe it's Town T Bank. Either way, this reviewer said that we are a great show for modern Magic players. And I must say, I agree with Town Bank. We are a great show. If you'd like to support The Dive Down, you can do so at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash thedivedown. 
You can also shop at thedivedown.com slash store. That supports us as well and outfits you in some sweet gear, shirts, hats, other stuff, I'm sure. I think there's fanny packs, bum bags, if you're British, like me, sort of. You can support us while playing Magic Online with a Mana Trader subscription as well using promo code thedivedown23. Gets you 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. Also get some sweet grooming products, fragrances, and more at Barrister and Man with promo code thedivedown23 for 15% off your first order with them. And last but not least, Nerd Rage Gaming, the matchmaker in my relationship with George. They also have a sweet promo code for you. This doesn't even support the dive down. This is just, we have a relationship with NRG. They want to extend a special something to our listeners. If you use promo code dive eight, you get an 8% discount on any cards you order from them. Use it as many times as you want. I dare you, George. I, I do. I do frequent their online shop a lot. I'll say. Isn't NerdRage your LGS or at least one of them? It is. It is. And, um, they have a loyalty program, and there's tiers to it. Oh, wow. Um, I am, for better or worse, at the 8% tier. Oh, wow. <laughs> Humble brag. Uh, maybe a confession. <laughs> Humble brag. You get to play a lot of magic. That's true. Tell me without telling me that you don't have any kids. Uh, I have a dog. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can crate a dog. I can't crate my two-year-old. <laughs> this is very true. Yet, yet. All right. You know, I want to talk about who you are very briefly and also mm-hmm. like how we met because we have met in person once upon a time before I moved to England. But even before that, we've like mentioned you on the show. We've noticed your results with like innovative control decks. I think we probably named you both by name and by your MTGO handle, which what is your MTGO handle? My MTGO handle would just be George Jabor. Okay. Somewhere, I know somewhere I was like watching you stream and I was like, hey, we were just mm. talking about your deck, which probably had Narset Days Undoing or some oh, yeah. other Narset package years ago. And then thereafter, I go to an Energy Mundelein tournament, one of the yep. bigger ones. And I go sit down with some friends of mine and you're sitting with them too. And I'm like, oh, hi, George. I'm Stan. I think at that point, you were already one of my notifications on my stream, your your voice. I don't okay. know if you know this or not. I did not know this. Every time I get a subscription, um, after the very first uh, NRG top eight I had last year, you mentioned the deck and me, and you kind of put me in the same breath as uh, Wafu Tapa, Gabe Nassif, and I if I could, would have done a backflip when I heard that. <laughs> I showed my wife, it was on repeat, and I'm like, this is this is a perfect sub sound. And wow. so to this day, that's that's what I've got. You know, it's hard to watch Twitch when you're in when you live in Europe and you're mm-hmm. trying to watch like the Americans, because most Americans, with the exception of like Spike and Doom and and maybe just like a few others, a lot of the streamers that I've enjoyed in the past are always streaming in the evening like after work hours which i think Makes includes sense. yourself um i know every time i've seen you stream once once upon a time it was usually in the evening when i was free mm-hmm, so mm-hmm, yeah. it's it's hard to keep up but maybe i'll check out some vods just to hear myself on there oh well, there's a really easy way if you want to trigger the audio 
you could you could sub. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you can you can sub. You can drop five subs. I, I can. Yeah, depending you're, on how you're many right. times you want to hear it. I can sub. <laughs> do I hear the sound if I sub during a vod? I don't think so. I, no, I have to, you do I have not. to sub no. live. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'll just stay up late one night and do that. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Um, we got to. You know, we have to introduce you, and mm-hmm. the the way we've introduced previous guests is through a little segment that we like to call Inside the Grinders Studio. I didn't tell you about this in advance. I wanted this to be off the cuff. I have some super secret notes off to the side so that you can't see my public notes. Okay. And all I'm going to do, George, I'm just going to ask you five lightning round questions that are going to dig very deep into your heart and soul. And you're able to answer them in as few or as many words as you want. Okay, I'm ready. Question the first. What's your favorite Magic the Gathering card? Narset Part of the Veils. Wow. It's, it's um, something that uh, I've become attached with, um, something that's brought me a lot of results, and a card that brings me a lot of joy. So I, I'm, I'm going to go with that one. I'm going to put it above Jace the Mind Sculptor, Brainstorm, all the good stuff, even Counterspell. But she doesn't even have Island Cycling. She does not. I don't play four of that card. I don't play four Lorien Revealeds, so... We're going to have to do, we're going to have to let Narset trump the rest. Okay. All right. I'll keep that in mind. Astute listeners will know that this Grinder Studio is going to be a little different from some of the previous ones because some of the questions that we're going to talk about, I think, cover previous Grinder Studio questions. And also, like, I know enough about you that I don't need to ask what your favorite format is. So instead, <laughs> what I wanted to ask, what's your proudest MTG accomplishment? I think I would say um, there's, I don't want to be like, oh, well, there's a lot to choose from, but um, I wish it's had. difficult to say that's an accomplishment or that's just somewhere I did well or that's a pretty cool thing. Um, but I would say that first energy top hit I had last year, um, I felt uh, over the moon uh, more than I think most of the rest that I've had since then. And I would say that's because I had taken a long hiatus after college. Mm. Uh, got married, got a new job, did some moving between towns, and just didn't have time for magic. I saw they printed Counterspell in Modern Horizons 2. I was like, okay, if that, anything's going to bring me back, it's this card. We we wanted it for the last 10 years that I was playing Modern. So I came back, got back into it, tried to get a grasp of the metagame, get some of the heuristics back down, play patterns, and didn't know if I still had it or not, or if I ever had it. You know, and then to be able to perform decently well at a, a, a you know a tournament where a lot of really powerful mages attend, um, I felt really good about that. And uh, to know that I could compete and and hang with some of the best um, brought brought a lot of joy to myself. Was that a modern tournament? That was a modern tournament. Yes, that was um, NRG Chicago. Um, right in my backyard. So it was, uh, it was a great time all around. And let me guess, you played some variation of blue-white control? Oh, I did. I had played uh, blue-white Narset that wasn't really on the map. It kind of still isn't. But um, that was the advent for me of um, bringing that deck to all the tournaments that I go to. Yeah, the advent of your brand, perhaps. Yeah, something like that. I wish I could sell t-shirts or something with just... Narset and my face on it. I don't know. Never say never. Parody Act. That's what the Parody Act is for. 
it's just so much. I've looked into merch. It's just so much work. I just, I, I just can't do it. All right. Question the third. What's the worst magic misplay that you can remember? Now, this is one where there are too many to choose from. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. There doesn't go a tournament. A tournament doesn't go by where you don't, you don't have some story either to, to share with your friends or to cover up <laughs> and just pretend. I, oh, no, I, I didn't misplay. I, I played perfectly. But yeah. my worst one. Um, First one that comes to mind that still stings. The the first one that comes to mind that does still sting, uh, it was at an NRG Chicago earlier this year where right after Lord of the Rings had come out with the One Ring, I was playing the One Ring um, in Narset, Narset Control. And it was my winning in for top eight, essentially. It was two rounds earlier. I ended up winning the next one for top 16. But if I had won that one, I think we would have been locked. And my opponent's playing creativity. I have a pretty good advantage on the board. I've, I've lost a lot of life at this point, but we're turning the corner. You know how it is with control. You you give up a lot of ground in the beginning. And I let my guard down just a fraction of a hair too much. I let something resolve that I shouldn't have, which was um, a creativity. Oh, I yeah. had a handful <laughs> of cards. Notable good seven, card in that deck. <laughs> I had seven or eight cards and enough life to play with that I could discard one, I could lose the three life, untap, kill the Archon, you know, play my ring, whatever it was, and just actually close out the game. Archon, I discard my Leyline Binding because I don't need this. I have a Solitude in my hand. Draws a, the opponent draws a card. They've got two mana up. They play, I forget the name of the card all the time, the two mana Red Enchantment that you en it enters end. the battlefield. Earth, no, no, no. The I, you discard a card and then yeah, draw two. Yeah, and then they can like pitch it or, or sack it to give a creature haste. They can very much do that. Yeah. And so they discard a card, draw two, play a land, and kill me. Right. And I'm sitting here staring at this solitude with no other white card, with a leyline binding that I just discarded in my graveyard. And I, yeah, I just, I felt terrible. I'm like, this is, this is, this was my game to lose and yeah. I've done it. I found a way. <laughs> and those, you know, those moments just happen. Sometimes you make a decision, you have all, almost all the facts in front of you and it just doesn't work out and that's okay. Yeah. Who do you think has helped you level up the most as a magic player? Oh, he's going to love hearing this. I don't even want to say it. <laughs> I would say uh, my friend Garrick Alfred. Um, I was actually just streaming with co-streaming with him yesterday night. One time at an NRG we met and had never met before. And I was going between the tables after I'd finished my round just to see what other people were playing, do some spectating. And I saw a guy playing a fully foiled blue-white Narset deck. And I was like, I got to meet this guy. So afterward, we chatted a little bit, and over the next uh, couple of months, chatted more on Discord and started playtesting together and just discussing the strategy over and over and how it best fits into the metagame, what some of the guard choices might be, how things are changing. And to this day, we just test all the time together. And I think the best thing that he's brought is a level head. You know, control mages, we can get carried away by certain pet cards, pet choices, maybe uh, safety blanket cards. And 
it's really helpful to have a playtesting partner who is able to say, you know what, I understand, but you cannot play that card. Mm-hmm. Or I get the appeal, George, but you cannot play 80 <laughs> cards without Yorian. It's just, just don't do it. And um, being able to have some of those words echo as I deck build, as I plan strategies, as I prepare my sideboard guides, whatever it is, has been a really big benefit. Well, thank you, Garrick. All right, final question. If you could ban one card in Modern, what would that be? Grief, grief, grief. Wow. Now, is that because of scam specifically? or Yes. Okay. I don't mind it in pretty much any other deck, which not very many play it. I guess maybe this reanimator deck that's been going around, but grief. Absolutely, undoubtedly. The card that lets you get double thought seized on turn one, I would ban that card. Hmm. Okay. Noted. Yep. Oh, did, do you have a say in it? Are you going to pass that down the line? Well, I can always tweet. <laughs> Thank you. Whatever whatever you can do, we appreciate it. I'm on Blue Sky. I can Blue Sky them, too. My That's handle, a good one. You know what my handle on Blue Sky is? No, I, I don't. It's Magic the Gathering. I got Magic the Gathering. You got Magic the Gathering? <laughs> you, you have the clout. You have the power. Yeah, I'm not getting as many followers as I thought I might. It's Maybe a matter it's of time. I don't think I'm posting enough about magic on Blue Sky. I don't think I'm posting enough at all, to be honest. <laughs> For better or worse. It's boring there. Okay, with all that done, I feel like the world knows you, George, as well as Hello I do. World. Let's talk about uh, tournament prep to start, because yep. you and I are both playing RCQs this weekend. And both with extended art yeah, decks. Yeah. <laughs> Oh yeah, I was I was uh, really happy when you said that. I know there's a lot of foil fiends out there, but I can't justify that. Yeah, you know the foils—they're too scary. They're too scary. I've been um, just as a total aside. Mm-hmm. I've been like just dabbling a little bit in the Pokemon card game. Oh, and, okay. And there are some Pokemon cards that only exist in foil. Ooh. And you just live with it. Magic players could not live with, was it Nexus of Fate? Was it the uproar? Think, yeah, that, that was, I think, the was one. one of them. Yeah. Or the one. Yeah. Man, no, I couldn't imagine that. So we're playing this tournament. You know, RCQs, mm-hmm. they're a step above the LGS, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, this is step one in your path to greatness. Mm-hmm. I've played, I've played one this year already. I played a lot more last year. Mm-hmm. How much do you grind RCQs? I will go... Okay, so this season, I'm not sure. It's still up up in the air because I'm a little bit more busier this season of life than I was for the last couple of RCQ seasons. But I'll go to at least a couple per month, unfortunately, mm-hmm. <laughs> as needed. But yeah, there's a lot in the Chicagoland area. It's an abundance. You'll find one at least almost every weekend, if not every weekend, um, for the majority of an RCQ season. And I'll travel an hour, hour and a half tops to one. And that's a far, far reach in the Chicagoland area. Yeah, because hour, hour and a half, you, you get up into Wisconsin and you can start playing yeah. some of those Southern Wisconsin tournaments. You get to Wisconsin, the border of Indiana, uh, Naperville, you know, West Suburbs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's been your best finish at one? H- have you qualified for an RC? Yeah, a win. Yep. W- which one, which RC did you play? RC Dallas. No, no, no. Sorry. Uh, RC Atlanta. The first one? The Pioneer uh, one? Yes. Yep. Cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were there, but our paths didn't cross. No. Sadly. <laughs> were you in the same uh, bracket of tables that I was in? 
the I was in the bracket of tables of people who just showed up but didn't qualify and just wanted uh, to hang okay. out. And, and I was there after a little bit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So when preparing for RCQs, or I guess like any comp REL tournament that you you know remotely care about, how much time do you spend actively preparing for the event versus just like playing magic for the sake of playing magic in the weeks leading up to a comp REL event? That's a really good question. I, I definitely do both. I try to go to as many legacy weeklies as I can. I'll probably go to two or three a month because playing Magic just for the sake of playing Magic is terrific. It's awesome, and I don't want to forget that. On the other hand, competition is you know, where it's at. And it's a, a little bit hard to quantify how much time I spend because it can happen in bursts. It can happen throughout the day. You know, if I get a, if we, if we DM back and forth with some friends about the upcoming tournament for like 20 minutes, does that count? I think so. I don't really sit down and play magic online for three, four five hours a day or, you know, three, four five leagues a week. Um, it's nothing like that, but I do like to put in a concerted effort to the point where I feel comfortable saying, I know the deck that I'm bringing. I have an idea of the decks that I expect to see, and I have a good grasp of the strategy that I want to bring this weekend. So oftentimes that will that will entail a couple of leagues in the week. You know, if there's a Saturday RCQ, I'll, I'll run a couple of leagues that week, maybe one the week before. Um, and then I'll look through a lot of the online results, or not online specific, but results that are posted online to get an idea of where the metagame has been and where it's going. And I think it's important to know that the metagame shifts very fast. And you know, if you're preparing for a tournament two, three months in advance, that may you know, not really be- benefit you or, or serve you well. You think even the paper metagame can, can shift that quickly? Yes, I think at competitive REL tournaments, it can. Um, if there's a new deck on the block that's just an ace, you may not see it at your local FNM for a month mm-hmm. because people are kind of just showing up after work, play some magic, do a little competing, but they're not going to spend, drop $200 on the latest playset of whatever card has just spiked because there's a new best deck. But for a competition, they will. And so when you're going to an NRG or even an RCQ, definitely an RC, yeah, yeah, absolutely. The meta, if it has shifted within the last two weeks, I don't know if you were at RC Dallas um, just a week or two after the Boros Convoke deck mm-hmm. came on the mm-hmm. scene. Mm-hmm. It was everywhere there. In it Pioneer. Was in all the R- uh, LCQ tables, yeah, in Pioneer. Um, it was, I think, a little bit in the RC. I don't think it had a great showing, but just to say that, yeah, uh, the metagame will shift at competitive REL tournaments. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I feel like this is just sort of like a good reminder that at least right now for people playing the modern RCQ season happening, like I think it literally kicked off last week or the week before and it's happening every weekend more or less for what, the next three months? Like if you're playing this weekend or next, like you have to be prepared for some beans, some beanstalks. Oh yeah, oh yeah. That's what's up. So when I was thinking about like my own mental approach to tournament prep like it i've never put it into paper like this before but Mm -hmm. 
I, I realized that like I've essentially adopted three steps to okay. thinking and planning for a tournament and at different stages of my magic career, quote unquote, like the weight I put into various steps changes. But in the abstract, I feel like all of my tournament prep starts with first testing, which mm -hmm. is just for the sake of like either trying different decks if I'm flexible in the format or potentially trying a new configuration of a deck that I know. For example, like seeing how four color rhinos plays versus teamer rhinos. After you've changed up mana, played more triomes, throw in leyline binding and ardent plea, what have you. So that's the testing phase, like trying to figure a deck out. Mm -hmm. Followed by the practice phase. And now this is where, for me, a deck has been selected. And I'm specifically trying to get familiar with like the deck's play patterns, critical sequencing or, or critical turns that matter most to a game's or a deck's plans. And then also identifying key interactions that, you know, the deck is trying to play against other people or protect itself against other people's interactions. And in, in this practice stage, for me, slight tweaks can still occur, like swapping cyborg cards or your land configuration, maybe changing a four of to a three of, etc. Right, yeah. And then the final stage, after I feel really, really com confident with, and, and comfortable with the deck, this is like the planning stage where I'm doing actual some like pen and paper writing about sideboard plans for specific matchups. I'm not sure what other planning there's to do. Like what snacks do I want to bring with me? What tokens, <laughs> what tokens might be using, but stepping back from the deck itself and like planning how I'm going to approach the tournament and, and the metagame and like, and, and really having a plan for who I expect to play against or, or even trying to have like some like abstract plan for curveballs. Like mm. what happens if someone brings like a mill or a merfolk, I might not write out a sideboard guide, but like, I'll at least consider like what happens if like someone's, what, what do I have for these less popular strategies? That's my basic philosophy. I, I'd love to hear your gut check on that. Like, do you have your own philosophy or approach? Did any of that resonate with you? None of it. No, <laughs> no yeah. What, uh, that's a really great outline. I would say, and I, I think um, you probably feel the same way. It's not linear. You can get to that planning phase and just like, no, I, I, need, to, I need to test some more. This didn't work out. I don't like the plan that I have. I need to go make some adjustments. And you hinted at that in the planning in the practice phase when you said, "Yeah, we can we can still make tweaks here." Mm -hmm. I think it's important to keep that flexibility open and not kind of tunnel vision and keep a narrow view and narrow perspective on card choices or overall strategies. I think you can get into specifics on what testing or practice or planning look like, and it'll look different to different people. You know, sometimes I'll consider testing if I. I build a deck and I hand it to a friend who I trust to pilot it and say, hey, you know, I think this is a good idea. Um, I don't have time to play today for locals or um, can you run a league with this if you've got a moment? Um, and I'll consider that practice for me in some mm -hmm. ways. I think um, some of the play patterns, like if you've played the same deck over and over, practice isn't necessarily, you know, play fetch land, fetch, shuffle, find my land. It, it can look a little bit different. But yeah, I think with planning as well, um, I like to put feelers out. I think it's really important. I think it's difficult as a as a 
single person or even one or two, three people to get like a perfect perspective on what the metagame is going to look like. Um, say you had a friend who went to a big tournament last week and, and maybe has some insights on how things turned out or new technology that they maybe came across. I think being, being plugged in to some extent can help with the planning, knowing what, well, if I'm going to an NRG, I know I'm probably going to see X, Y, and Z people. Mm-hmm. What have X, Y, and Z people been tweeting about mm-hmm. in terms of decks and strategies? Um, what are they maybe typically uh, prone to bring to a big tournament? And keeping that in mind during planning, because it's not in the abstract. But yeah, it's important to know what this looks like for you. And if it's not working, feel free to change it. Where do you feel like you spend most of your tournament prep these days? Because personally, mm-hmm. like I'm doing very little testing anymore. I've I've found a deck that has been really good to me for a long time. We talk about it constantly. I've started full arting it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I don't need to test anymore i just need to like practice against the changing environment and potentially Mm -hmm. make tweaks because new innovations emerge and i don't Mm -hmm. know that if for me like putting in a couple flames of anor and mutavault into rhinos is really testing it's more like practicing with a different configuration and figuring out like what numbers mattered the most to me i mean i guess maybe we can split hairs and call that testing with new cards but like i find myself feeling less reliant on cleaning up like the cobwebs of a specific deck and his play patterns and and for me like it's more about like trusting my autopilot enough to pick up the pace when i'm just like in the moment and and really spending more time nowadays on like the planning and like thinking about what people are likely to bring um based on the metagame based really based on the online metagame and seeing how much that reflects into paper I, I, I feel like on some level, you you might be in a similar position because you, like me, just kind of play the same deck every time. Is that fair? <laughs> it's it's more fair than, than I would like to admit. Um, even as I enter my testing phases, as, as they're outlined here, the testing practice planning, and I try to rearrange a deck, I fall back on the same strategy. I mean, not out of laziness, but hey, like you said, this is working. I'm going to stick with it. How important do you think it is to prep for every single tournament? Oh, I think I think we all have enough time to have some amount of prep for every tournament. Um, I do spend a lot of my time nowadays more so, quote unquote, online than playing Magic. I know back in college, we played so much. Uh, we would do a lot of the testing by hand. But nowadays, I mean, there's information and there's data and there's metagame shares and there's visualizations and there's analyses people put out. And I think it's important to leverage what you can in addition to just your own results, playtesting against your friend. And it's important not to neglect and ignore, you know, hey, there was a huge, you know, two, three, four hundred, five hundred person tournament last weekend. And the deck you were playing to bring didn't have a great showing. You should consider that. And maybe make some adjustments accordingly. But yeah, I'll, you know, I, I like to throw on Twitch streams while I'm working, kind of in the background, get a feel not just for what the streamer's playing, but what their opponents are playing. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they're going to play the same deck for a couple hours, but you're going to see five, 10 different decks on the other side of the table. And you'll be 
getting some insight. Okay, this is what people are playing on Magic Online. This is how some of the games are playing out. I'm just, I'm downloading all this as we go because, you know, I work, I have stuff to do. I don't have unlimited time to physically play Magic. Um, So it's important to be able to get some of that information in different ways. Yeah. Something that I've been thinking a lot about ever since a particular article was published is the difference Mm -hmm. between good and bad practice. Right. Last November, a Magic player known as Ash, who's also known as Shutter MTG, published an article Mm -hmm. to Substack that was titled, How Bad Practice Can Make You Worse in Magic. And it was basically a synopsis of that first pioneer RCQ and lessons learned preparing for it and then lessons learned during it and trying to like take a long, hard look at really the difference between blindly grinding games of magic for the sake of playing them and racking up numbers versus playing magic to ask yourself specific questions and honing your decision-making skills. And like that completely changed my framework in terms of not just tournament prep, but like how I think about every individual game and, and the importance of reminding myself that when I make a play, I have the time to ask myself like why I'm making certain plays. And I've had similar lessons from coaching sessions that I've done with various other players who are better than me and have made me better too. And though they don't always put it neatly or, or explain it as neatly as Ash did in, in that article, I, I felt like that's one of the things that preparation has done best for me is making me understand and, and really come face to face with like when I'm playing ice on turn two against someone, like why am I doing that? Or what is the reason that I shouldn't do that sometimes? Or, you know, like nowadays we're talking about like island cycling Lorien reveal. Like when are you supposed to do that versus mm-hmm. when are you supposed to hold it as a pitch spell? And like having the discipline to like ask yourself those questions in real time and, and to and likewise to like know that you're supposed to ask yourself those questions. I feel like preparation is critical to not necessarily just like helping you get closer to the truth of a deck or a matchup, but revealing to you that nothing is always black and white. Do you have your own opinions on good versus bad practice that you've had to face or think about? Yeah, yeah, definitely. What what, um, what you're describing definitely resonates. And I, I read Ash's article um, when it came out and it was really, really insightful uh, not just that, it was really vulnerable and really open, which I think it goes goes into what you're describing when you're saying, oh, psych- let's say, let's take cycling Lorien Revealed, for example. Should I cycle it or should I not? As a, as a Magic player, you know, you're probably a smart person and can justify either decision. Oh, yeah, well, I totally did it because, and I was justified because, but to pause and say, well, I was justified but it was wrong mm. and I should learn from that. And I, there was something someone sent me recently. It was some clip of Kobe Bryant saying, someone was asking him, do you, something along the lines of, do you love to win or hate to lose or so, something like that? And he's like, you know, I, I'm playing to learn. I, I want every interaction to be something that I'm learning from. 
And for someone who wins a lot, you you have to sit back and think, well, that's something I can learn from. That's that's an influence that I can take and kind of internalize. Um, so what next time when I'm playtesting against my friend and uh, let's say we're playtesting Magic Online, I misclick, I end up losing the game. My friend says scoreboard. I say like, okay, sure, but dude, you would have lost that game at a tournament. And I think that's important to consider. And that's the type of thing where it could be really, I mean, magic at the, at the core of it is winning and losing. It's a game. And it's really easy to, as everyone, one of everyone's favorite catchphrases, be results oriented. Hmm. Um, but the, the results are only a very, very small part of the picture. The journey to get there, the, the prep, the planning is 90% of it. Um, you do a lot more playing magic outside of a tournament than within it. Um, and so, yeah, it's important to not just, if you have this perspective, it's great, but to surround yourself with people who share this perspective and outlook toward tournament practice is invaluable um, because then you're kind of both on the same or you're all on the same page. Um, no one's here to win or lose a particular playtest session, which as silly as it sounds can be the case sometimes. Uh, you're here to learn, you're here to maybe play open-faced, you're here to discuss and talk through some of the lines, and just keep an open mind overall. Yeah. Do you think that if, if you're practicing on MTGL, the quality of practice you're getting differs if you're doing prelims versus leagues versus challenges or whatever? This is a contentious question. Uh, not necessarily for me, because I don't care, <laughs> but for others, um, I, I think the answer is yes and no, because at the end of the day, you are still getting something out of playing a league as little as people might give that credence. Um, I mean, you see people who do play, you know, one, two, three leagues a day. Some of the streamers, they're great magic players. You know, they're also playing prelims, of course, but not as many, not as much as necessarily the people who just play prelims. Mm -hmm. However, it is overall higher level of competition, um, especially challenges, prelims. There are people who are trying to qualify for something. There are people who are taking it seriously. Kind of what we described earlier with the comp REL, you know, the metagame shifts. There, there's people who are here to, to win. Uh, sometimes people playing in leagues are just playing with some friends, you know, just having a good time. Maybe they're streaming some janky blue-white Narset deck and just having a good time. Um, and you can you you are fair to consider that, quote-unquote, not great testing. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, just find another way to test. But if that's all you can do, it's better than nothing. But, but now, are leagues, is that bad for testing or bad for practice? I, I, I mean, personally, don't think it's bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I guess, I, I don't know if I made that clear. I, I yeah. I'll, if I have time, I'll play a league to, to practice. Yeah. But, but um, if it is, if it is a little bit of testing, you know, it, it does overlap a little bit. But in a perfect world, let's say like mm -hmm. I have decided this is the season that I'm really going to put the work into winning an RCQ and like, I'm honest with myself, like it might not happen on the first one. I might have to fire mm -hmm. a few bullets and I want to do the best quality practice possible, I'm probably going to get more value out of prelims or a cheeky weekend challenge than, mm -hmm. you know, maybe doing two leagues 
aka 10 matches, which is about a challenge's worth. Mm-hmm. Now, I assume that's because like the people who are coming, you know, as you put it, the people who are coming to prelims and challenges, they're playing to win. And I think yeah. like what really this is, I think I'm about to quote Ari Lax and something that mm-hmm. he, he said once on the Dominaria's Judgment podcast, where playing against like a higher level of competition, what you end up finding yourself doing is being placed in difficult positions because of opponent's decisions. And and likewise, what you want mm-hmm. to learn to do is the same to others. Does that, does that make sense to you? Like, do, do you oh, agree yeah, with that? Absolutely. Do, do you think that's Definitely. what it comes down to? I think some of the best leveling up I've done is, and a lot of viewers I'm sure resonate, is playing against people who are better than me and doing a lot of losing. Mm. Uh, the I think you were describing in a perfect world and I want to get the best amount of testing in. I wouldn't do it on Magic Online, personally. I would find people, I would gather the decks that we need and play paper paper testing. Uh, it's, I think, infinitely better than doing online testing. Um, even, even the idea that you could misclick and then all of a sudden, this game is thrown out the window in terms of information you can gather to some extent. Mm-hmm. It's just, I, all right, this is a, an invalid data point at this point. We don't know how this game may have ended up if I didn't skip my entire turn. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's a, it's a good amount of, or it's a better testing environment to do those high higher stakes events. But if you really want to say, hey, I have a NRG coming up or I have um, whatever, a Pro Tour, an RC coming up, I'm going to grab the friends that I trust, the friends that I respect as Magic players and say, hey, let's sit down and, and do this and, and focus and do this. Do you remember what type of prep went into the RCQ you won and how that changed from the prep you may have done for the RC itself that you lost? <laughs> well, I didn't lose it. It was never mine to lose. <laughs> oh, man. Um, I think at that time I was playing a lot of Magic Online. I was doing a lot of streaming. I had a lot more spare time in that season of life. And so I was streaming uh, a lot more frequently. And I was going to weeklies a lot more frequently. Nowadays, I, you know, like I'll commentate because NRG streams their weekly modern. Sometimes I'll commentate. Sometimes I'm busy. And so the season of life has changed a little bit. But it was a lot of Magic Online. And I will say since then, I've made a lot more friends, competitive friends. I've made a lot more connections in the competitive community. I have a lot more people I can reach out to, discuss ideas with. And so I, I think I'm in a different place than I was back then in terms of the resources I have access to. Yeah. How important do you think is tweaking to the prep and practice process? You know, like once upon a time when I was a little younger, I would Mm -hmm. think about the last sideboard slot until the morning of. And nowadays, maybe this is my own bad habit or, or maybe I'm not taking certain tournaments seriously enough, but like I planned out my deck a week ago and have literally already finished my deck list and i'm just like i've, I've figured out my sideboard I'm, I'm ready to move on i'm sure like the best case scenario is somewhere between those two <laughs> like not <laughs> not not stressing to the last possible second and having a little confidence in, in your choices but like do you do you think over analyzing like each individual card and especially the 15 in the sideboard does that help Specific, like literally answering your question of overanalyzing, no, I don't think that helps. 
like you said, somewhere between, you know, anxiety and apathy is, is where we want to be. I think it is important to consider the tweaks, though, for sure. Absolutely. I think even the 15th cyborg card or the 14th, if you play Kahira or Yorian or what it may be, is, is George, very important. George, 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 you can't play Yorian anymore. Dude, are you in are the you legacy putting... weeklies? I can, and I will, and I do <laughs> <laughs> every time. <laughs> oh, yeah, and apparently it's good now. So, you know, I wasn't wrong, I was just early, but yeah, I think you know, you will you will bring them in at some point. Uh, and if you don't, that's something to reevaluate later. But if you if you go into a tournament, and you, I think you asked this earlier, where you said, you know, is it important to prep for every tournament? I think the answer is yes. I think if you want to go to a tournament blindly, maybe nonchalantly, maybe you don't care if you win or lose, you're going to get out what you put into it unless, you know, you're some really, you know, some prodigy or it's just like a hundred times better than everybody else in the room. I think if you have a deck like Rhinos that you've piloted a lot, you're very comfortable with, you know what each card um, what purpose each card serves. Yeah. You don't necessarily need to say, well, all right, from the top, let's evaluate the first card, the second card, all the way down to the 75th. Not super necessary. For a lot of decks that where stuff doesn't change very much, let's say Tron in modern, you really don't have to do that. You can maybe consider if a new card has been printed, should I add this to my sideboard? I think What's been recent is like Filigree Silex, maybe one of the most recent ones that, that has changed something in the 15. You don't have to reevaluate constantly. However, if you're playing a reactive deck where you need to react to certain strategies, let's say a blue-white control deck, it's super important and it's, it's necessary to actually do that because you need to know what every card in your deck serves a purpose for it's not just playing 60 good stuff cards. It's not just playing 60 synergistic cards, let's say like a Yawgmoth deck. It, it is 60 answers. And mm-hmm. if you don't know what you're answering, and you've, if you brought last week's answers for this week's threats, you will very likely be out of luck. Yeah. Yeah, I think back, the last time I played a competitive modern tournament, I actually did it with no prep. It was, it was a win-a-box. So stakes relatively low and obviously i played rhinos it was before lord of the rings but or no no i'm sorry it was after lord of the rings but before lorian revealed was discovered as mm. the technology so like there was one person in the room playing the one ring and it had like just come out but i wasn't sure what to do with my final cyborg slot for that particular tournament and I just put in a, a brother's hood and the wrath that can also wrath artifacts. Yep. It's just because I was like, oh, you know, this might be good against like random decks. Something. Yeah. And then it ended up winning me two games. Um, <laughs> and, and I guess like ultimately two matchups as a result. And like, I, I wonder how much of that is just like results oriented confirmation bias that like. I, I figured out like the one card that was going to like get me through that tournament versus just like the deck was solid no matter what. And this one card kind of helped you get there, but it wasn't the sole reason you got there. The reason you got there is because of, you know, the other 74 doing their end of the bargain. 
Yeah, I mean, it's a little of column A, B, and C. I think you can you can get the right answer the wrong way. That's fine. I mean, hey, if I was in your position, I would ride that high. You know, like, <laughs> hey, I did really well at a tournament. Yeah, how'd you do it? Don't worry about it. I just did well. <laughs> I had Brothers Hood End against Harden Scales. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It. I thought about Brothers Hood End for a week, and I, I just thought it was the right meta call. Um, but yeah, I mean, it happens, and it's it's a great feeling when it does. Yeah. Let's talk about sideboarding in a little more detail. Sideboard guides. So hot Ooh. right now. People are selling yeah, they them. Are. <laughs> they uh, are. They are. On the corners. How often, historically, have you referred to these either because you made them yourself in preparation or someone you trusted put one together for your 75 or like something that's close to your 75? Well, I'll make my own. I think it's important for me, not necessarily a necessity in general, but it's important for me to know what every card, what purpose every card serves in my deck. It just makes me feel comfortable. It relieves a lot of my anxiety about, oh, I really don't know why XYZ person put this card in the deck, but I'm going to play it anyway. Mm-hmm. I would feel really uncertain. So it's important for me to make my own guide. But I do make them for every RCQ and above level event. I think at f I don't have, it's it's at Wednesday, it's the middle of the week, we're going to jam. I'm going to play some Stoneforges maybe, I'm going to play some pet cards, it's a great time. But yeah, if, I'm, if I really want to do want to win a tournament, look, as a control player, even at the end of game one, it could be 30 minutes in, you're sweating beads, you know, your forehead is just glistening, well maybe, maybe not yours, mine definitely will, and I don't have the wherewithal to kind of sit, all right, so let me analyze what my opponent just did, what some of the cards I need to bring in are. No, 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 I'm, I'm way too flustered and I'm trying to, I'm watching the clock and I, you know, I, I got to win another game. I got to make sure I don't lose and go to time. And it's so nice to just say, I did this work already. Mm-hmm. I am prepared. I have the mental shortcuts that I can take here. I'm going to leverage them. And and sometimes the guide might be wrong, right? Like you have to mm-hmm. be willing to pivot even like even if you've taken the time to think about it, plan it out, when you're actually face to face with the information your opponent's providing, you might think like, actually, maybe this one card is good enough. Yeah. No, definitely. It's not a sideboard Bible. It's just a sideboard little, you know, hey, consider these. I like to write some notes sometimes and say, hey, this is how I'm sideboarding. If you see something different, it's not set in stone. Please mm-hmm. make some changes accordingly. Uh, maybe it's based on your opponent's play pattern, what they've done, what they've shown you they're willing to do in certain game actions. You should make the adjustments. And sometimes you may not need to. You say, all right, well, this one's pretty standard. This one's pretty by the book. Let's just wrap it up and take this one home. Yeah. So I had this planned conversation about tournament prep, definitely was going to mention sideboarding and then yesterday like last night I, I i'm pretty sure i actually even like woke up to this message this morning was a, a dm from george like hey uh can we talk about this new website i just made <laughs> to help people make their own sideboard guides it was very fortuitous timing it really was i did not plan it at all but i'm really happy that the, the timelines have aligned so Flexslot.gg. Mm-hmm. Tell me about it. Well, 
Um, what is like it? I said, let's just start. Let's start with like the 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 basic. Like, if someone goes to flexlot.gg, what are they gonna see and do? Um, I don't I don't have nice boilerplate like you did at the beginning of this episode. I'm kind of going entirely off the cuff here. I'm a rookie at this, but it's a sideboard guide website. It's um, I had a tagline. I may or may not keep it. It's called Flexlot for the grindy matchups. <laughs> <laughs> it's in it's still in some of the imagery I have on my desktop but basically I've been making cyborg guides and I mean it's it's a it's a great time I enjoy the discussions around them I enjoy creating them and sharing them but I don't play every deck and it I really wanted to be able to give others the opportunity to make their own I've made a couple of uh, Google doc or Google sheets templates in the past and shared those with the community and some of the people, I mean, it's resonated. It's been well-received. Um, they have, you know, some calculations and some stuff, some drop-downs. It's kind of kind of a helpful tool. And I've always wanted to take it to the next step. I was just always waiting for someone else to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, until I'm like, look, I can't keep making these uh, Excel sheets that I keep losing. And I don't know which one's the most up-to-date. And they're just hard to keep track of. And the format is kind of annoying. And I feel like I'm at work again because, you know, I work with Excel sometimes. And I just, I, I want to feel like when I go to make a deck list on a deck list website, you know, it's something I can save. It's something I can share. And I think that's that's where a lot of the motivation came from um, is I personally wanted a better tool for this. Mm-hmm. And now it's a, it's a way for me to share with others. So, did you build this yourself? By one definition, yes. You know, literally. But, you know, a lot of thanks to the people who've supported me, you know, emotionally kept me going, um, given me ideas, done some of the really alpha behind the scenes testing. Um, shout out to, to everybody who's, who's helped with that. Did this require coding? Like, I, I'm, I am kind of curious, mm-hmm. just from a high level, like, are you writing javascript to make this or like how did you actually build this it started as an empty document with nothing in it and um it's now um yeah it's a lot of javascript it's it's angular for the front end and uh django and postgres for the back end um and some frameworks here they're sprinkled in between but yeah it's it's programming from uh, you know started from scratch Maybe there was a better way to do it. I don't know, but we're here now and it mostly works. It's still kind of in some form of beta. I'm still doing a lot of, you know, tweaking and, and adjustments, but um, yeah, it's it's working. I don't know. Yeah, I, I messed it with it a little bit ahead of this episode. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I liked, so a few a few things that I really liked was, A, it's a very clean interface. Like it's, yeah. you, you build a deck, it's a column, and then you can like literally press a button to import the entire top 10 modern metagame and then Mm -hmm. you can just start like clicking plus one minus one on individual cards to assign like what you're taking out what you're putting in and you can also filter by play versus draw which i thought was pretty convenient as well as add Mm -hmm. like just additional notes about Mm -hmm. you know your deck or your plan it's currently free Mm -hmm. is it going to stay free do you know it's it's free for everyone except me right now. <laughs> yeah, server um, costs. But yeah, I think um, that's that's the the idea right now. I don't. You now I've been asked a lot, like, oh, so 
you know, you plan to take a cut from creators or, you know, you plan to have some sort of subscription. Not really at the moment. Um, that was never my, like, it was not one of my motivators going into it. My motivators was I make these cyborg guys all the time. I want to make them, I want to make them more legible. I want to make them more easily. I want to have more fun making them. I'm sure a lot of people feel the same way. And so I'm not really thinking about how to flip this into some sort of grand monetization. Although if people have ideas, I'm listening. <laughs> I don't even really want to put ads on it at the moment. Um, I don't like the experience when I go to a website and there's a lot of pop-ups and ads and I have to dismiss things. Mm. Um, a lot of, a lot of my, uh, design choices for this are, you know, what would I enjoy as an end user and then going and, and making it that way. And so, it would be nice to to monetize it at some at some way. You know, the Patreon's open, the the donations are open, and that's great if people want to support. But you know, I am I am employed, so I'm not you know trying to make money or trying to make a living off of this. I just every time I open it, I just think, oh wow, this thing is this thing exists. I get to I get to use this thing. There's like a separate George the Developer and George the the Magic Player. And I'm like, oh man, someone made this thing. Oh wait, it was me. That's pretty cool. Do do you have any specific goals for it in the near or long term? Yeah, I think, I don't know. I, there's some integrations I would like to do. There's some collaborations I would like to do. Um, my goal for it, well, it wasn't really my goal for it to be sort of released into the beta at this point. But uh, my wife, Angela, was kind of encouraging me the whole time, like, you're being perfectionist. Just Just get it out there. You know, things can change. You can make adjustments, just get people's hands on it. And so even getting to this point, I think, is as it, farther than I expected to be at this point. I'm kind of taking it one step at a time, one feature, one bug report at a time. I would just want to get people into it. That's yeah. that's the goal. I, I You know, I want to get people using it. I want to get people's feedback. I want to make adjustments. I just, I, I would like for it to be a good, useful tool for the community. Hell yeah. Thanks for making it. I, I think it has a lot of potential and promise. It, it, I mean, it already works outside of the box. Yeah. And you can tell that it is, that it has like room to grow more features. Some of them are listed at, I, I, I think it was maybe on your Twitter you listened about. Maybe it was on the on mm -hmm. the Flexlot page itself, but excited to see where it goes. And I think it's going to be an awesome addition to like, People who are like stuck trying to figure out like awkward Word doc templates mm -hmm. or like maybe, no. you know, some people aren't very good at using Excel. They haven't had a lot of experience <laughs> with it and like don't know how to for format cells or columns. And this kind of just like makes it easy. So, yeah, I was I, I was sent a lot of sideboard guides over the last year or two. And hey, if you want to send me one, please send it through FlexLile. It'll be much more legible. All right, so that's flexlot.gg. There will be a link to that in the show notes. Anything else that you want to touch on regarding tournament prep that we haven't discussed that you think is valuable or important or, or maybe even like lessons you've learned that have aided you over the years? I would say don't stress. Just at the end of the day, call it, you know, this is the deck. This is the strategy. I'm reasonably confident I'm going to put it down. Um, I think stressing to the, for the last, you know, <laughs> flex slot 
to the mm-hmm. last minute, you know, you're submitting your deck 10 minutes before deck reg. I would advise against it. You know, there's a something to be said about going to a tournament nice and calm. And I would encourage to to be to be mindful of that um, throughout all the rest of the tournament prep. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we return, we're going to talk about modern control, maybe just control in general, why it's unbelievably hard to play, maybe why you shouldn't be playing it, but the things you should know if you're a modern psycho and insist on putting blue-white cards in your deck no matter what. Stay with us. Stanislav, I have appeared in your ad break. I love when we do that. An <laughs> ad break cameo. So you know, you know what's funny is I've actually been editing your conversation with George this week, mm, and I'm here to tell I'm I'm you sound great. George is great, by the way. So I appreciate you having him on. I thought I'd just tell everyone how much I enjoyed your conversation. But we're not here to talk about George. We're here to talk about you. This is an intervention. This is this is a uh, a smell smeltervention, oh, a no. fall smell intervention. Because I truth need to tell out. you, Stanislav. Yeah, I mean, remember, Stanislav. You know, we had that conversation a few weeks ago about dismal swamps and tangled junipers and serpents oh, yeah. and whatnot. So spooky. Because you were talking about hollows, right? And so hollows we thought was out then, but what it really was was a pre-order, and now. Hollows is available for purchase on Barrister and Man, our regular sponsor, on their website. Quantities, please note, quantities of hollow products are limited. And when Barrister and Man says stuff like that, they're not lying because they have tons of seasonal products. And two we wanted to highlight this week were all the hollow stuff. If you do not remember, is it takes inspiration from swamps and churchyards. So if you want to be a goth... <laughs> which I'm cool with. <laughs> then you can combine vetiver, or oak moss, black pepper, cocoa, labdanum, and cedar to get your scent on. You know what people don't realize is that you're the goth of the show. You're probably Shane. right. Shane's the goth. You're Dave's the emo the grunge, punk. And I'm the emo, yeah. <laughs> and along with hollows for my goth self, there's also Leviathan is back, which is Five stars, 128 reviews for the shaving soap alone, by the way. And Leviathan is definitely, I think this is going to be a Dave smell. Uh, Sandalwood, coffee, cedar, and musk. If I was going to describe Dave in four words, it would be those. Mm. Uh, A dark and feral scent. So again, very Dave-like. And so yeah, if you want to grab those before they're gone, I would suggest doing so. Hollows itself, as we talked about, comes in a ton of products like brandy snifters and hoodies and water bottles, but also, of course, the shaving soap, the eau de toilette, the aftershave balm, and my personal favorite of the products besides the shaving soap are the, is the aftershave splash. Oh, stunning. I love the aftershave splashes. The thing about them is that they first soothe you after a shave because you're using yes. sharp blades on your flesh and body and that's oh, going to cause some to be, irritation. They're supposed to be sharp? As sharp as possible, my friend. Oh, no wonder I have the irritation. A razor's edge. Well, the aftershave splash helps soothe that irritation. It's okay. like calming. It's moisturizing. It leaves you feeling refreshed. 
It comes in these invigorating scents, as you know, because we've just been mm-hmm. talking about all these wonderful ingredients. But also, it's never greasy. It absorbs really quickly. You just splash it. it on your face. And then within a few seconds, it's an afterthought because <laughs> it's an aftershave. Yeah, I like it too because it's like a fragrance, but it doesn't stick around quite as long as cologne. And mm-hmm. it's not as intense. So it's kind of like a subtle fragrance. And also, I think it mixes pretty well with a lot of the other sort of regular old colognes I have. And so I like mixing and matching the variety of scents from the library. So if you want to go grab some of these, head on over to Barrister and Man, M A double N, use coupon code The Dive Down 23 for 15% off your first order at Barrister and Man. We appreciate it. And we're back. So I came up with the title of this episode before anything else. And it stemmed from, you know, just kind of following George online, knowing that he was the control expert that I could talk to. Because um, I don't think Gabriel Nassif or Wafotapu want to talk to me after what I've done which is start a hit Magic the Gathering podcast. And I was like, I, I want to chat with George on the horn. And uh, I bet the best way for me to get him on the show is to entice him into talking about control for a bit. But here's the thing. like, We don't really talk about control decks especially highly on the dive down lately. Because you know we try to be as data focused as possible. And... You know, data changes tournament to tournament, but, you know, we've seen that, like, blue-white X and and blue-black and, like, decks that have control in the name, like, they just haven't been particularly strong contenders in modern. Um, So, with that in the background, I was like, I just want to call this episode, like, Don't Play Control featuring George DeBoer, the control master. But you and I both know that some people can't be stopped specifically control players correct yeah and and maybe they shouldn't be stopped like there's there's a place for them to kind of keep us on our toes and sweating (laughs) once to fairy hero dominario is on the battlefield data aside what do you think is the current state of control in modern i don't think that control is a tier one deck you know a lot of people will send me andrea mangucci's tier lists that uh, he creates every, I think, month it is. And it's like, man, such disrespect for control. It's not on the tier list or it's D tier or, you know, whatever. It's, I'm like, I don't know. It seems accurate to me. I think <laughs> he's got a good grasp on the metagame. And unless you're you're crazy or, or obsessed or having a great time or particularly uh, adept with control strategies, I wouldn't recommend for someone who's asking me about what should I play in modern I wouldn't recommend, you know, blue-white or blue-black control. I think there's a lot of threats nowadays. It's difficult to keep them all neutralized. When is control good? Like, are there, is it case by case? Like, you know, control got some new pieces and other decks didn't? Or is it bigger picture, like specific metagame environments? Like, oh, everyone's playing combo. Then, yes, I want to register as many counterspells as possible. 
Yeah, I, I think it's the second. I think um, we saw a really good example, um, or we see a really good example in Pioneer, uh, where if you know one of the top decks is, say, Rakdos Midrange, and you could put four Memory Deluges and four Teferi Hero of Dominaria in your deck, that's a great position to be in. Following up on that, uh, if the top two decks are Rakdos and, and Mono Green, some, some kind of slowish decks, uh, we saw a, a bit of a rise in uh, Lotus Field control um, because it just has such a great matchup against two of the top decks that are going to comprise you know, 20-30% of any given room. Um, that's a really good time to bring control. Um, when the metagame is a little bit maybe narrow, I should say, or not solved, but you have a great expectation of three or four decks that you're going to see, and control is good against them. In a format like Modern, that's wide, broad. You said earlier, you know, you don't know if you're going to face against, you know, Merfolk or uh, Mill. People can bring anything to a Modern tournament, and it can be competitive. And if you brought, say, a control deck that's geared toward beating Scam, and you didn't bring any Fluster Storms, and two people brought Storm, mm-hmm. bad day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's kind of the perspective I have. Do, do you think? Control can be a consistently plus 50% deck in modern? Or is the modern yeah. format just like too big these days? I think so. And I mean, I would say I'm plus 50%, right? I think there's some. <laughs> well, that's why I'm you're sorry. on the dive down, George. <laughs> I think there's some nuance to it. Uh, if you zoom out a lot and you could consider four color a control deck. Uh, you'd have to build it a certain way to be a little bit more agnostic to the threats that are across the board. And if you're playing four Omnaths and four Teferis and four Renin Sixes, it might not matter what your opponent's playing. In some sense, that's control. I just, you know, I neutralized you by just being better than you. In a different sense, yeah, control is very targeted nowadays, not just in terms of people's strategies, but in terms of the cards that exist. There was a time where Veil of Summer and Mystical Dispute didn't exist. Mm-hmm. That was a great time. Unfortunately, their existence overlaps with Counterspell's existence, and you have to take the good with the bad. Knowing that some of these cards exist, and if you brought a great strategy and a great sideboard plan, and you counter their spell, and they play Veil of Summer, and you may not be able to come back from that. And so I think there's definitely a ceiling as to how high of a win rate control can have in a, any given modern metagame. Why do you keep coming back then? It's because you've sunk I'm cost sick. into all the I'm full just arts. Sick. <laughs> yeah. No, you know what? Um, I, I upgraded all the full arts after a really good year of, of playing control, and I, I thought the deck deserved the reward. And, that, um, that was why I did ever it too. Since then. <laughs> yeah, I right. Just, like, I was just like, you I served keep me well. Yeah. Um, I I enjoy the strategy. I don't really enjoy playing a card like Ragavan or Wall of Roots or, you know, Karn the Great Creator. Um, It's not really what I look for out of Magic. I'm not trying to play a threat. More specifically, I don't like getting my threats removed. I don't Mm -hmm. like, you know, dying to kill spells or or being, you know, ground out by what my opponent's doing. Um, if I play a couple of creatures and they play a Fury, I'm leaving home and I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm not coming back. <laughs> Jokes aside, though, I, I I like the 
strategy that Control has. I like the puzzle that it presents. Hey, here's some pieces. Here's a metagame. Here's some cards you can play. Put it together. What can you do? Can you can you come up with something that that is a winning strategy? I appreciate that. It's hard though, right? Like being good at control is, in my opinion, and I, I want to hear if you agree, it's it's harder to be good at control than it is to be harder at like just about any other deck apart from like very, very proven hard decks. Like at one point, Hammer was like a very difficult deck to play mm. intelligently. I think because it has like these weird combo lines and linear or, or narrow mm-hmm. opportunities to, to win. Um, there are times when Murktide was a very difficult deck, I think, for that same reason. I feel like those decks kind of ebb and flow sometimes and in, in how challenging they are to an average player, whereas control is just like, it's always kind of hard. You're always evaluating like decision trees with 20 branches that stem from like your opponent's one card and you have to decide which of these three answers do I want to deploy? Yeah, I mean you are presented with a lot of questions that you do need answers immediately for. In addition to that, you don't get free wins. I mean, Mm. maybe the freest wins you can get are a deck against a deck like Rhinos. Sorry. No, Uh, I know. It's true. (laughs) It's so true. Um, But we don't even play main deck Chalice anymore. You're you're getting some free free equity with your main deck disputes and our sideboarded Chalices. But regardless, uh, if you have grief and uh, a scam card in your hand, you very often just win that game. You know, if you sit down and you have a Nurse's Saga against uh, a control player that doesn't have dress downs, for example, that's probably a free win. Uh, there's a lot of decks where you can just cruise comfortably into the end zone. Control doesn't really have that. I would say maybe control is 100 0 against. Infect, which doesn't exist, and maybe it's not even that good. There's no free wins, and that that serves to a lot of its difficulty in terms of piloting. Um, you are on from the first land until the last concession. Yeah. Uh, are there like specific abstract ways to think about how to play control versus any other random deck? Like, if if I were to tell you, like, hey, George. Um, you know, I've been playing Burn forever. I want to try Blue-White, something totally different. W- what do I need to know about playing Control that I wouldn't have gathered, like, from playing another strategy, plus having never faced against Control myself? That's a really good question because I've never played Burn. So I think we need another guest on the podcast <laughs> and have a little... Uh, it doesn't have to be Burn specific. Like, you're, you don't have to worry about answering this for the Burn player, but, you know, like... Uh, maybe it's a magic noob who's like yeah. going to come to you and be like, there's something about counterspell, the card that looks really appealing to me. Like, how should I think about playing the counterspell decks? Shane, Shane, my co-host, will frequently <laughs> ask other guests, like, how do I think about playing counterspell? And and we usually say, like, when your opponent casts a spell, you just, just counter it. Just mm-hmm. just play the counterspell. But I want to know is like, how do I think about playing control? And as yeah. I'm as I'm asking you this, I'm fidgeting with a dive down pin, a first edition dive down pin, one of our first pieces of swag that says never playing control again. Because <laughs> I got burned by it too many times. Um, no pun intended. 
there was none. But yeah, like, do you think there's like specific heuristics to playing a control strategy, like whether it's draw go or tap out control that Mm -hmm. control players recognize and and maybe they've articulated, but maybe they haven't, but it's kind of true universally across control decks? Yes, I think you have to know what you're getting into. I think when you bring a deck like Tron or Four Color, you don't really care what you're sitting across from. You're kind of in something like a race and you're kind of just uh, maybe similar to Pioneer where you're just two ships passing in the night. You know, sorry, I had to throw shade at the format. But a lot of times you're just like, I'm going to play my cards and they're going to be better than yours. And that's that. But when you're playing control, you do have to assess pretty much everything that your opponent is doing um, from the lands they're tapping to the cards they're playing to the cards they're not playing. Um, to the cards you know are in their deck or might be in their deck, to the cards that are in your deck, like you said, they play a spell counter it. Well, if I have a removal spell, maybe I save the counter spell for something else, maybe something with an ETB. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to have this in your mind in advance, kind of just in your working memory. You don't want to be making these decisions as you go. Like you said, you get to these spots where, you know, there's just so many questions and you're fumbling with the answers. And I think if you have sort of a mental cheat sheet in, in advance, you know what's a threat, you know what's not, you know what answers you're looking for against certain deck, against certain cards. Like you said, save the counter spell for something else. I think that's, that's really important. Um, it's not just a good stuff deck. As, as much as control people would like to have you believe their deck is full of good cards, they're not. There's a difference between, you know, Counterspell and what else is in there? Counterspell and Archmage's Charm. Oh, yeah. Don't get me started on Leyline Binding. But there's a difference between Counterspell, Archmage's Charm versus Renin Six and Omnath. Like, right. one of these are good cards. The others are magic cards. Um, it's tough. You got you to gotta know what you're using when. Yeah. You know, I had this whole section called how important are wind conditions to a control strategy, but I, I feel like we just need to talk about Narset specifically. Ooh. Because, so Narset's like a pet card for you. You know, it, it comes and goes from various control strategies in various colors. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, correct me if I'm wrong, you're primarily sticking to Azorius control. Yeah. Maybe like quasi four color to play Leyline Binding, but it's yeah. Azorius cards. Mm-hmm, yeah. When you're registering narset like is it always narset plus days undoing or is it sometimes just like narset to be my three mana dig through time it's i think maybe there's been one or two tournaments where i've registered narset without days undoing um there's been zero where i did the opposite of course but i think um Nar- it's not just a three mana dig through time although that's a big part of it against a lot of decks i want to go back to something we've touched on a lot which is There's a lot of threats. There's a lot of questions that you're being asked as a control player. None of them matter if they're not in your opponent's hand. And that was a big motivation as to why I started playing the deck. I don't think playing Archmage's Charm, Memory Deluge, all these draw-go cards is a good strategy right now in modern. I think people have realized that at this point. And I, I first started playing the deck because control could not keep up with four-color Yorian at all, no matter what you did. There was no way. The only way to do it was to mind-twist them and then win the game somehow. 
and I think that's all. That's the the core of what Narset brings to a control deck is, yeah, it'll maybe fog for a turn sometimes, eat a removal spell, draw you a card, you know, find you, you know, dig four cards deep for something you're looking for. But also it will just, all right, we're getting into this part of the game where you've got some mana, you've got some cards, you know, at any point you could slam a haymaker or an ace card and I'm not ready for it. Let's just sidestep all that, take everything away from you, and then I will end the game at some point. But now I don't have anything to worry about. You're demoralized. There's no way you're coming back. Yeah. Uh, how often is control good? Because Teferi Time Reveler is like the heart and soul of so many control strategies. Man, that card is something else. Could, could um, control exist without it? You know, that's a very interesting question because I also think it's one of Control's biggest weaknesses is an opposing Teferi. Of course, um, yes. So if there was no Teferi, maybe, you know, we'd be better off like we are in Pioneer. Uh, but it is, it's integral. I mean, there's a lot of gumming up of not just the board, but your opponent. Like you throw a wrench in your opponent's plans when you're on the play, they played a creature, you play a Teferi and down tick, and they're like, well, shoot. Okay, I, either I redeploy this and then they have a Teferi for a little bit longer, mm -hmm. or I kill the Teferi, I, I don't repressurize the board, they buy some time. Um, he really is a Tom Raveler. <laughs> and this just, it's one of those few cards that your opponent has to somewhat care about. A lot of times it's not the case. Uh, Teferi is three mana and doesn't really affect the board in a lot of cases. It's the type of card that you'll board out as many as you can versus a deck like Tron because it just doesn't do anything. But against a wide enough array of decks, it's bread and butter. Yeah. Let's let's do like a mini lightning round where Oof. I, I want to talk about like some of these key win conditions that exist in some control decks and not others, or maybe they're recurring across, you know, control decks throughout history um, and curious like where you stand on them now basically like in their position for control decks in okay. general so like i'm ready narsa days i'm doing like do you see that as a combo finish for control yeah i think i think i wouldn't play a modern control deck without it right now what about creature lands you know i i'm old enough to remember when celestial colonnade was the thing that was killing me um, then one day it turned into Castle Ardenvale. I think it still is in Pioneer Control. Castle Ardenvale mm. is like just slowly producing enough one ones. One by one. Are, are Creature Lands still central to control wind conditions? No, I don't think so. I think Hall of Storm Giants the closest that comes. I think having something that's untapped is invaluable. But even then, Leyline Binding taxes your mana so much. Between that and Lorien Revealed, cutting on the quantity of lands... I just don't think there's room for Colonnade uh, for sure. Um, maybe you can squeeze the hall, but I haven't played a hall in uh, a few months at least. So you're playing control with no creature lands now? Nope. My removal are my win cons. It's just Solitude and Kahira and Subtlety. Amazing. What about Shark Typhoon? In Pioneer? Excellent. I'd play yeah. five if I could. And I have the secret layers, so it's even better. Wow. Modern... Not unless you're off the top, but don't bring them. Teferi, Hero of Dominaria. Pioneer. 
not even modern playable? No, no, it's really not. It's it's what happened. It's it's five mana. It's susceptible. I think the biggest thing that happened was on Holy Heat. Um, Even if you tick up, you just time walked yourself to draw a card. You're dead. You don't have any mana up for your opponent. Um, It just doesn't line up well against what the current format is. But in Pioneer, oh man, play as many as you can. What about Wandering Emperor? Pioneer. I I, I hate to keep mentioning that format, but... um, Hey, we we like Pioneer. Also Legacy. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, Obviously, you mentioned Solitude. It's your removal and your win condition. What Mm. about like... Remember the old big angels and like sometimes I see Dream Trawler in, in Pioneer as well, but like Bane Slayer and Lyra Dawnbringer as the post board juke. Mm. These have all been relegated to Pioneer. Um, there have been Pioneer decks where I play like a full angel package in the sideboard. I'm definitely on Regal Caracal nowadays, but I think Solitude just obsolesced all of these options. What, what do you think? So. And maybe it is Teferi, but like, what is the best card in modern control these days? Like, what is the reason to play control? That are, are there any cards that um, maybe you're using better than any other deck? Well, it's definitely not Prismatic Ending or Leyline Binding. I hate those cards with a passion. They're a necessity. I don't even know if it's Counterspell because I think Murktide plays it to better effect. Um, being able to protect something and just kill your opponent um, is really good. I do think it's the pitch spells. I think it's the forces, the subtleties, and the solitudes. Um, Being able to answer your opponent in ways with or without mana um, can catch them off guard, can help you turn corners faster than you should be able to. And with the advent of uh, the One Ring and even the Bean, sort of, you can recoup your card advantage. Being able to use these pitch spells is, um, is, is the big reason, I think, to be playing Control. Are you playing four rings? Uh, currently on three. I think um, it's a good number to have. There's not, you know, you're not playing four Omnaths, but mm. uh, I am playing the Narsets. You know, it's, it's no reason to be greedy. Just there's enough fluff in the deck already. Yeah. And Narset can find ring. Narset can find ring and the second ring <laughs> and other Narsets as well. Yeah. How often do you think control needs to iterate to changing metagames? Like, is it is it just whenever a new set comes out? Is it more frequent than that? Um, I, I, I would say it's more frequent than that, for sure. Um, if you consider iterating at least to be, like, reanalyzing, are we good? Are we still good? All right, cool. Let's run it back. Um, you don't necessarily have to make changes, but I, I would say monthly, if not weekly, depending on how many events you're going to. Yeah. And how often do you need to be willing to swap colors to stay in the control lane but like in a productive control lane so like you know most recently blue black control thanks to that you know sauron something card from the lord of the rings set, like kind of put yeah sauron's ransom like it, it helped put demir control on the map for a bit i'll say those cards they're not to fairy time reveler i think i will be hard pressed in modern to play a deck without white in my control deck um, because of that card. And then same for Pioneer. Like, I'm not playing a, a control deck without Teferi Hero of Dominaria. I know some people have found success with blue-black control decks in both formats, but I think you lose out on just just a little bit too much. 
And um, like I mentioned earlier, Solitude's the win con, and it's a removal spell. I mean, I don't know what more you can ask for from a control-based card. Yeah. All right, so trying to stay conscious of time, I don't want to keep you too much longer, but before we wrap, I do want to spend a little bit of time talking about like some of the actual matchups. Mm. Because Modern has been you know, relatively stable and predictable for a really long time. And even though Lord of the Rings had its impact, and it seems like Wilds of Entrain is going to have some impact as well, like we can still more or less anticipate certain strategies remaining relatively prevalent online and in paper. So you as a control player, I want to hear kind of what you're thinking about when you peg your opponent on some of these specific decks. Like what cards matter? Are, are, are you feeling more or less stressed maybe, etc.? Starting with Rakdos scam. Just don't scam me. And I I I'm I'm good. I'm golden. I think that's the the one Achilles heel in that matchup is the turn one double grief. Pretty much everything else you can deal with. Even the turn one fury? Oh yeah, that's that's fine. You have solitudes and bindings. You'll take a couple of lumps, but um if they don't scam me, I I breathe a sigh of relief. How how frequently can you recover from the turn one grief? Not very often. You need to rip off the top. I mean, that's what that's the position they put you in. Um, and so there's, unless you have an insane hand, uh, that's just gre- double grief proof if it's like triple solitude. But yeah, you're definitely in a in a tight spot. D- does that matchup improve at all with like anything that's coming in from the board, like certain ley lines or something else? You get to bring in um, what set was Stern scolding from? I think that's Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. That has been a huge help in post-board games. It's one of the best uh, upgrades that the deck has gotten for this game matchup. Um, It hits everything except Fury, and specifically, it hits Bowmaster. Mm -hmm. Um, um, Love that card. Yeah. All right, let's talk about the Bean. We can call it Money Pile. Lately, it's been the four-color Bean deck. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned that once upon a time, like, playing blue-white against the four-color Yorion decks was a Sisyphean task. (laughs) How do you feel about it now? Uh, I feel about it now the same way I felt when I first started playing Narset. It's pretty good. Maybe something around 60-40. I mean, that's that's a big reason to play Mind Twist is they're trying to draw cards and you just take them out of their hand. Mm. If my opponent goes turn two Ren, turn three Teferi, I'm sweating, but... If they have anything resembling a slow handful of removal, I'm I'm breathing a sigh of relief. Rhinos, I assume, is probably one of your best matchups. Oh, it's a party. Yeah. It's a great time. Because, you know, sometimes you'll have the main deck Chalice. Obviously, you have mm-hmm. main deck to fairies. Post-board, you're bringing in things like Flusterstorm. Theoretically, or, you know, maybe... More chalices. Other, yeah, more chalices. <laughs> I, I, I can probably count on one hand the number of times I've beat Blue-White Control with rhinos in the span of like two the two years i've been playing it most like consistently i think the the more one drops a deck has the more fear i'll have and that deck starts at three so i think that's a big part of it what about hammer time that's tough you're you're you have a pile of removal no doubt but i i don't think i breathe a sigh of relief in this matchup until they say okay next game Mm mm-hmm because at any point, you can just, out of nowhere, lose all your life points or get 10 Infect yeah. or 
die to some constructs because you just you, you cleared everything out and they drew an Urza Saga. That's a scary matchup. I feel like Dress Down, Solitude, Leyline, Binding are all pretty good. Like even, I, I don't know if you're playing any Wraths, but like even like mm-hmm. a cheeky Wrath will oh, yeah. kind of like reset the board as long as they don't have, you know, a way to make an, a killing killer infect creature. I mean, even without that, like a turn one Esper Sentinel on the on the play out of Hammer, yeah. backbreaking. It's so yeah. innocuous, but it just throws a wrench in everything. And so, man, it's yeah, it's just not easy. You have the tools, though. You have the tools. Yeah, I feel like with control, it's really hard to kill the Sentinel without giving them a card, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because if you if you just wait. Okay, you can wait. You're taking some damage. You're not going to answer something until turn three. You're way behind. Just start shuffling up for game two. Merktide seems to come and go pretty frequently these days. Now it has preordain. Ponder? Eh, preordain. Preordain, yeah. Not quite. Has preordain changed that matchup for you at all? Has has Merktide adjusted, do you think, adequately to whatever whatever it looks like now post preordain this is a, a similar comment to earlier where the more one drops a deck has the scarier it is so mm-hmm. Merktide definitely falls under that umbrella however you have really great answers to all of their threats so unless they have a really aggressive start backed up by counter magic for the rest of the game um, you can really take control here you've got you know you've got the solitudes the supreme verdicts just stuff that they have very difficult time answering. In addition, like you mentioned, Preordain, the more cards my opponent plays that don't do anything or that say draw a card on them, I'm happy. Right. How about Yogg? Yogg's deceptively difficult, especially now with the Orc. Before, like, if you came prepared for their combo finish and they just started attacking you with 2-1 Hasters forever, you just die. And your hand has, you know, it's like Narset and Teferi, and it's just so clunky. It sometimes just does not line up well. Um, and now, in addition to all that, they have an instant speed threat that you have to be on your toes for for the entire game. Definitely a difficult matchup. Again, you have the tools. Luckily, all your removal exiles something um, mm-hmm. between binding, pending, and uh, solitude. So just just don't miss a beat, and you'll be fine. <laughs> Um, let's see, who else? Am I missing anyone obvious? Like, I feel like Living End is really on the downswing right now. Mm-hmm. Amulet? Amulet, in, if you're playing any number of subtleties, you know, you should go into that pretty confidently. Subtleties, dress downs, solitudes, I think you, you have a good uh, set of tools there. Um, some of the difficult ones would be like Tron and Burn. One of them goes way under you and the other one goes way way above you. And so um, if your uh, answers don't line up well, they definitely won't line up well game one, I'll tell you that. And then games two and three are pretty much a sweat. Mm-hmm. All right, la- last one I, I want to mention, just because we on the dive down, which was not me, I was not on last week's episode, but last week the dive down spoke about mono black coffers for a good bit because uh, Devin O'Donnell won the challenge with it and then like did yeah, really did. well in the super qualifier with it. How do you feel about coffers versus control? I think this goes back to if a deck doesn't really have one drops and two drops, I'll be I'll be okay 
It's not quite Tron. It's a little bit slower than Tron, a little bit less uh, threat heavy than Tron, and the threats are a little bit less backbreaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and between the the main deck forces and subtleties and counter spells, I think at some point I'll be able to mind twist them and just run away with the game. If not, just cast a bunch of solitudes on their end steps and and eventually just get them down to zero. I'd love for you to cast your vote on coffers. Is it control or mid range? It's not control. No, it's not control. Right? It's a mid range. No, deck. we we don't we don't accept. It's a, it's it's just a big big man of mid range. Yeah, it's it's big. I would qualify. Well, you know, you can put tags on certain decks on flex slot, and I would put big mana, and I would put mid range, and I would probably put land based because they've got the the coffers. I would bring in my crumbles, mm. but definitely not control. It assumes a control role in a, in some matchups, but not oh, versus me. I love that distinction. Very clever. All right. Well, this was super super fun. We got to wrap up. And before we go, let's let's plug your butt. Whoa. <laughs> With promotions. Um, we talked about flexspot.gg. Your new Flex slot. Oh, thank you. I, I keep mistaking that actually. <laughs> Flex slot. It makes more sense, really. Flexslot.gg, your new sideboard guide creating interface. Mm-hmm. It's it's mobile and desktop friendly. I tried my best to make it mobile with with top of mind, yes. You also stream. Where can people find your stream? Twitch.tv slash jab jabber. Cool. We'll add a we'll add a link to that in the show notes as well. And anything else you want to promote? Should people find you on Twitter? Yeah, definitely. I put a lot of my thoughts on Twitter. I'm on Blue Sky, but I'm not really on Blue Sky. I've definitely I've got a Patreon. I, I put a lot of my strategies on there. Uh, as well, if you want to support the website, which is which is free to use right now, you could support through Patreon or through even Twitch subscriptions. Also, I'll be at pretty much every NRG always. Um, definitely reach out and and um, I'll, I'm just going to plug my human self as well. Nice. W- what's your Patreon called? Same thing. Uh, Patreon uh, slash Jab Jabber. Sweet. All right. So we'll have no- links to all of those in the show notes. George, thank you again for coming on. This was probably like a month or so in the making, maybe a little more, but Mm. I put the feelers out. You politely agreed a while ago, and then I was excited that the chickens finally came home to roost. I've been really happy to be here. I appreciate you reaching out. I love these types of discussions. I hope that the viewers get something out of it. And if they have any follow-up questions about control, they they can always reach out. All right, that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episodes as soon as they come out. And if you use Apple Podcasts, please leave us a rating and review. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or just reach out in general, you can tweet us at the dive down all one word, or email thedivedown at gmail.com. If you'd like to support our show, you can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thedivedown. And also check out our store at thedivedown.com slash store. And head over to heavyplay.com to get some incredible deck and dice boxes featuring the Equip Mag system. Connect your deck and dice boxes to your playmats. It's awesome. I love them. Sincerely, you will too. Use promo code thedivedown2023 for 10% off your first order with Heavy Play. Shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the Dive Down. If you sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the Dive Down 23, all one word, you'll get 10% off your first two months of renting Magic Online cards. 
And also get some amazing shaving soaps, body soaps, fragrances, and more at Barrister and Man using promo code the Dive Down 23 for 15% off your first order. And finally, save some money on paper cards over at Nerd Rage Gaming with code Dive8 for 8% off your order there. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Space Blood for letting us use their music. And until next week, get out there and play some control, maybe. Mm-hmm.